This is episode 328 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are 10 DIY Alternatives to Modern Day Appliances and Life Without Medical Care, How the Public Health System Collapsed in Venezuela. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey guys, this episode is being sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. It's time to finally advance your preparedness goals. Get the ebook and join the forums. Go to microbiz.biz or go to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com for more information. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right into these articles. Our first one comes to us from survivalpedia.com, and it's entitled 10 DIY Alternatives to Modern Day Appliances. So there's a lot of good stuff here, so I know that this one's going to be a real interesting one for you. All right, so let's go. Stick with simple solutions that you could build from scratch if you lost everything. If you are prepared for that, you can come back from most challenges. Do not cast aside tens of thousands of years of human development. Learn how other cultures solve the survival problems they face. Get your hands dirty, putting in dirt time, trying these solutions out. And save information on alternative solutions to your survival library. If you have ideas of what to do, you can figure it out. Human beings come equipped with much of what they need to survive in the form of instinct and DNA. Survival gear is important, but many survivalists are overly focused on this. What is needed to survive is adaptability, and the problem-solving skills that make some people adaptable are acquired through experience. So in my opinion, Americans tend to lend far too much credit to academia and even large corporations for innovation. In fact, the cultures of both suppress innovation. Significant innovation happens when knowledge for two or more fields is combined and both academic and corporate cultures discourage this. Significant innovation is more often the result of entrepreneurial tinkering and people facing problems needing solutions. Survivors experience this on a life or death scale. They adapt or die. Not so in universities and corporations. I see this action all the time. At a survival expo, an audience marveled at a safe tinder floating on water that could easily be extinguished and relit. Almost on cue, a hand goes up in the audience. So, did you come up with that in a university lab? Where did you go to school? Then the answer, oh no, I was out coyote hunting one time and it got really cold. And, well, the man faced a problem and created a solution to his problem. I have both witnessed and participated in this process abroad in developing nations where I have spent months and sometimes years. My wife is from Brazil and until we met, she had never lived in a home with glass windows or hot water on tap or even reliable running water. Her parents are from two different formerly enemy tribes and her mother came to the city as a toddler riding in a basket on the back of a donkey. When we are in Brazil, we live very simply. We keep a trash barrel full of water in the shower so we can bathe when the water does not run. We also use a much better designed water filter than the designs we use here in the U.S. or Europe. It keeps the water inside 
cool through evaporative cooling and we dry clothes on the coils on the back of the refrigerator when it rains because a dryer is considered a luxury and the off and on power would never be able to handle the load. Read along and I'll share some adaptations with you that I have learned in my travels. So refrigeration. How do you keep foods or medicine cool without a fridge and the power company? Sure, you could hook a 12-volt fridge up to a small solar system, but that is not something you could improvise if you had to or that most folks in developing nations could justify spending that money that much money on. Some of you science students might suggest using some sort of Rank-Hilsch vortex tube technology, but that is not efficient enough to be practical and how would you build the hardware? It is mostly used to cool air-powered drills and other tools that push high volumes of air. So the root cellar. What my family used before we had electricity and even after was a root cellar. A root cellar uses the large thermal mass of the Earth's crust and the constant cool temperatures found below ground for everything from cool food and medicine to prevent decay and degradation to prolonging the life of batteries. Do you keep batteries in the fridge? They will last longer if you do. The higher the temperature, the quicker food breaks down, even shelf-stable foods. If you store MREs, every 10 degrees above 60 degrees Fahrenheit can cut their shelf life in half. Even while you have electricity, consider storing your food storage in an insulated pantry. My grandfather showed me how to do this as a boy. He added extra insulation to a basement room and essentially turned a room of his house into a root cellar only with the added help of modern air conditioning and a thermostat. Digging a root cellar might sound like a lot of work to the average person nowadays, but when you have two years or more worth of food stored, that is a lot of money sitting there. Now imagine how important that food was to my grandfather, who grew and canned all that food himself in his own garden and orchard. He even built a separate canning kitchen for the task. Compared to all that work, building a root cellar is not so big a sacrifice. A root cellar can be constructed by digging a dugout or by digging into a hillside, but in rocky terrain it may be necessary to frame the roof in masonry and mound dirt against it to create an artificial hill. And so, uh, you know, it's funny that I'm reading this here. Um, this week I saw just, you know, M Michael Bunker, I don't know if you follow him or not, he wrote the book Off Off Grid. And uh, he's written some uh, other fictional books and, and other books that might be uh, of interest to preppers. But he was in his root cellar. He lives in West Texas, and he, West Texas. And he was saying that it was like 107 degrees. And I'll tell you right now, Texas has been extremely hot. Um, everybody is kind of mentioning that. And we're, uh, we're not looking forward to the summer here. But he said it was 107 where he was. And so I think it was like 30 degrees cooler in his root cellar and so he talked a little bit about that and how they would go down there and take a nap in the in the heat of the day because it was just so much cooler down there and so when you're in and he was trying to cool off his body just because it was so hot and you're working out there so uh you know it definitely can be done i think one of the things he said uh when when he was uh, i don't know if it was his maybe it wasn't his live uh, his facebook live that he was doing but um I think I, I was reading where he was saying, I realized after coming down to the to the root cellar and cooling off that this is how 
Um, those that you know came before were able to manage living in this kind of weather or in this kind of climate was to have these root cellars where they could cool off and go down there and, and save their food and, and different things like that. So definitely that is one thing that probably if the poop ever hit the fan that a lot of people would have to go back to and, and start digging into. All right, so the next one is put in a pot fridge. This is a much smaller project that uses the evaporative cooling properties of terracotta to cool a space, much like the water filter I mentioned in the introduction. Terracotta pots come in a range of sizes to meet your cooling needs. If you do not have a room or suitable land for a root cellar, give this a go. Start with two nesting pots. The interior of the smaller of the two pots is the space that will be cooled. There needs to be at least three-fourths an inch of space between the walls of the two pots when nested. Fill the drainage holes in the pots with a suitable material, which could be clay, cork, a plastic cup, or about any object. When I did this, I caulked an object into the place to get a good seal. Now, line the larger pot with at least three-fourths inch of clean, coarse sand, depending on the size of the pots you select. The layer of sand can be thicker, but the layer on the bottom should be above the same as the gap between the walls of the two pots. Nestle the smaller pot inside the larger and fill in the gap around the two with sand, leaving a gap near the top. Now fill the sand layer with cool water and cover the top with, this, with several layers of cheesecloth or cotton cloth, tucking it down into the gap you left so it can soak up the water via capillary action. Keep plenty of cool water on hand because you will need to replace water as it evaporates. As the water evaporates from both the cloth lid and the walls of the container, it will cool the pot quite noticeably. Placing the pot in a shaded breezeway will help. The better the airflow, the cooler it will keep your food. All right, so guys, you might have uh, heard of this one before, or maybe if you are new to prepping or new to the podcast, um, this is also called a zeer pot. Uh, Z-E-E-R. The, the only problem with this one is going to be that the, the evaporative effect depends on the humidity. So somewhere like where I'm at, where humidity humidity is usually high, this probably isn't going to work as well. Um, now, I haven't tried it. I did buy a pot. Uh, in so, I, mean, I hate this. I bought two terracotta pots, was ready to go, and then had it in the garage, and something fell against the pots and, and broke them. And so I never got a chance to actually try it because even if it, because what I was going to do is I was going to build it and then take it up to the country and leave it up there. Uh, but, you know, it, it just, we never, never had a chance of, of trying it here. So I think it would work a little bit, but not like it would in a drier environment uh, from all the reading and the research that I did. Um, the only difference in the way that he's describing it here compared to the other things that I have, uh, I have read is here he said to go ahead and uh, leave a little bit of gap so that you can tuck in the cotton or the cheesecloth into the sides where the uh, where the sand is. And uh, I have always seen zero pots that come the sand comes up all the way to the edge, and then the the wet cotton towel or whatever you do, uh, you know, you, you drape it over the top. So that's the only difference there. So I wonder, you know, how much difference um, that would make if you were able to do it that way. But anyway, something to definitely uh, think about, especially if you are in a drier climate. Um, you, you know, it might be good to have one of these, and you know, a, a de- you can get decent-sized terracotta pots, like at Home Depot. All right, the next one is an expandable ice box. 
Like many insulated containers, an expandable icebox can be used to keep cold foods cold or warm foods warm. What makes it more effective for the survivalist is that the insulation can be molded to the shape and size of the object you are trying to heat or cool. If you have used an ice chest for a long camping trip, you likely watch the ice and food disappear, creating a large volume that can't be cooled and the ice quickly vanishes. This container isn't for use with ice because it is not designed to be waterproof, but works great with ice packs and Dutch ovens. Ever sit in a beanbag chair full of polystyrene pellets? If you have, you have known that they are great insulators. The expandable icebox is just a fabric box filled with small polystyrene pellets. The wall should incorporate several layers of cotton fabric and should be several inches thick. If you use a pattern for a fabric box which, with lid and a sewing machine, this project will go much faster. Instead of filling the fabric box with polyester batting, fill it with polystyrene pellets. Because of the nature of the pellets and the fabric walls, the box is easily expanded or collapsed to fit the size of the food you're heating or cooling and can be collapsed for storage. If you put a Dutch oven inside the box, be sure to allow it to cool sufficiently first as the cast iron has a large thermal mass and will retain heat for some time on its own. Uh, I know that I've mentioned this one before and this was uh, like the Wonder Box. Uh, if, you, if you remember that one where you were able to build it and uh, you just kind of put the pot in there so you, you warm up. So if you were doing like rice, right? So you, uh, you bring the, uh, or beans, you bring the, the pot to a boiling you cover it, you put it in this box, and you seal it up. And just because of that heat, it holds that heat in there, and it kind of cooks it uh, or continues to cook it in there. And so I know that I've done that. Actually, there were some plans for one uh, not too long ago in a, in a podcast that uh, you'll have to go back. I think, I think you can search for Wonderbox in the search menu uh, on the podcast website. All right, so let's go ahead and go to water. Water is heavy and necessary, so it's in your best interest to invest the time to pipe it where you need it. Growing up in the desert southwest helped me understand both the importance and scarcity of water. A solar hot water cistern. Solar hot water is a simple concept. Water from a cistern is fed to black pipes and a shallow glass box, which is set at an angle to catch maximum sunlight. Convection causes the water to circulate through the system, significantly heating the water in the cistern. Add an insulated cistern and you have hot water, which is amazing. I had one of these on one of my homes and it did not produce warm like a plastic solar shower. The water was hot. The downside is that they work best in places that get plenty of sun. So the terracotta dual chamber water filter. How the terracotta water filter we use in Brazil works is much simpler than the two-pot fridge. The filter has two chambers, just like an American or European model like the Berkey. But instead of the walls being made of plastic or stainless steel, they are made of terracotta. The terracotta absorbs water through capillary action and transports a little bit of it to the walls where it evaporates, cooling the vessel. Just like our filter, water in the top chamber is pushed by gravity through cylindrical filter elements and drips into the bottom chamber. The difference is that the water in a terracotta filter is much cooler and since countertop water filters are not stored in refrigerators, that is a very big deal. 
On hot days, the difference between a cool glass of water and a room temperature drink of water is a big deal. If you can drill holes and change filter elements, like you will eventually have to do even with a purchase filter, you can build your own and save money. Besides, you would have to learn to replace elements and change gaskets to, to survive anyway. So why not build your own and use the money you save to buy more of what you need and cash it for a rainy day? So laundry methods. So a washboard. I have done laundry on washboards in rivers and in concrete basins with a washboard molded right into the concrete. Concrete wash basins are cheap and a fixture in most lower income households in many developing nations. The downsides are that concrete and stone washboards are very hard on clothing and that carrying baskets of wet clothing home from the river and wringing clothes by hand is very labor intensive. It is so labor intensive that in countries where the guys sit around in cafes smoking, drinking, and watching soccer and the women engage in this hard physical labor, there are quite a few cases of female on male domestic violence where women mop the floor with their husbands. There are all kinds of washboards. I have seen them made of stone, concrete, tin, wood, and even plastic. I keep a little travel washboard in my toiletry kit. Hey, I want to uh, really quick, one of the, the ideas, and I, st- I still haven't purchased one. I need to go ahead and purchase one. But one of the ideas I, I thought of, if I ever had to do this, uh, you know, do we had to do laundry by hand, is ringing out, and I'll tell you from uh, not too long ago when we had our experience that our refrigerator, um, you know, leaked all over the house, and we had water all over the place, and I was wringing out towels, and I'll just tell you, it sucked doing that. But uh, one of the one of the ideas, if you remember, if you ever seen those big like yellow mop buckets, and then they have that thing where you 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 know you put the you get the mop wet, and then you put it in this container, and then you push it, and then it just kind of pushes all the water out. And so, uh, you know, the, the mop isn't soaking wet. I thought about using one of those for laundry and uh, or at least to, uh, you know, to wring out the, the clothes so it's not they're, they're not so dry or, or not so wet. I'm sorry. And so uh, you're not doing it by hand. So I just really thought that that might be a way to do it. I've never really tried it. I don't know if anybody else has tried it before, but I think that would be a really easy way. I mean, a lot of those those mop buckets, I mean, they're kind of like um, made for, you know, industrial use. Um, you know, you see them like in schools and different things like that and, and big, you know, places where they're mopping all the time in restaurants. And, and anyway, so I, I think that that would really hold up really, really well. So that is one thing that I do have on my list to purchase at some point. All right, so the next one is a dry bag. While backpacking with limited water, I wash clothes in my dry bag using clean flip-flops as agitators, and this method uses very little water, which makes it a great technique to use in the desert. I heat up a little water and put it in my dry bag with a little Dr. Bonner's Liquid Castile Soap, which is my soap, shampoo, dish detergent, and sometimes even my toothpaste, but I don't like to use it for that. For a survivalist, it is very important that everything in your pack be very multi-use. Um, so a dry bag is very good for holding water, not only uh, for holding water, uh, but I remember uh, watching a, an on-point preparedness video uh, a while back where he used it to carry water. So if you you know, you know want something, uh, some kind of carrier, um, you can find these dry bags and they're because they're, they are waterproof, they're actually supposed to keep water from getting the stuff inside of it wet, but at the same time, they will hold water on the inside of it because they are waterproof. 
um, you can use that to transport water and you can transport a lot of water. So it might be worth it to have a dry bag or two in your pack um, because, you know, you can you can break those down really, really uh, small and then and then bring them out if you ever really needed it. Um, I don't understand how he did the flip flop uh, as agitators here. I don't know if he's just using them to kind of, uh, I don't know, he's hand holding them and, and, and using it that way. Uh, I'm not sure on that. Uh, I think a picture would have been real good on that one. But um, the Dr. Bonners for toothpaste, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm willing to put a little bit more weight in my pack and use some regular toothpaste. Uh, but that's just me. All right, so the next one is plunger washer. The dry bag is great, but for long-term washing needs, you are going to want some mechanical advantage. Perhaps the simplest way to do this is by using a plunger washer in a five-gallon bucket. There are many types of plunger washers, and they run from $20 to $30 tops. In a pinch, you can use a clean toilet plunger. The idea is then that it agitates the clothing and forces water back and forth through the fabric. I, I think you, if you're going to do your, uh, a clean toilet plunger, and they're not very expensive, uh, but you know you want to probably drill some holes in the top of the of the plunger, um, just to kind of so you you don't want it to uh, create a sucking or a suction at the bottom of a five gallon bucket. Um, so the next the next little section here says plunger washer with mechanical advantage, and uh, I'm going to read this again. Um, I guess, I mean, I just read it, you know, getting ready for the for the podcast. I'm reading it again. It was very hard for me to picture this. So maybe it's a little bit easier for you to picture. Um, but so let's see if uh, maybe I, I get it on my second or third time reading it. But uh, anyway, so here we go. It's a plunger washer with a mechanical advantage. Here, all you have to do is build a simple wooden frame. You can use the power of the lever to apply mechanical advantage to plunger washer. First, attach a long wooden handle with a linkage at the top of your plunger washer. Next, construct a wooden frame with a hole drilled in a horizontal cross member that runs about a foot above the bucket so that the plunger handle can be passed through the hole like a piston and the vertical member of the frame provides a bracket pivot point for a second handle which will act as a lever attached to the linkage when moved in an up and down motion. Then attach a second handle to the linkage to form the lever and run it through the bracketed pivot point. When pumped up and down, the lever provides a gain in mechanical advantage, driving the plunger. All right, so I understand levers and understand the the mechanical advantage. I'm just having a hard time picturing that in my head. Uh, maybe just a little bit clearer as maybe I need to just read it a, a couple more times and maybe I need to draw it out for myself. All right, so the last one is a ringer washer. The ringer washer typically incorporates a washboard and a basin, but designs add levers and rollers to gain mechanical advantage. One ele- once electricity came about, some electric ringers wash hit the market. They are powerful machines, and on one of one of these, my aunt broke her arm. All right, so uh, again, that's where I think I would use the uh, that mop bucket, and uh, again, that's just me. And uh, I wonder if that would uh, I would be able to use it that way. So if you have used a mop bucket in in that way, just let me know. I'll be curious if that's working out for you over there, or if there's any issues or snags that I really uh, that that I haven't thought about. So guys, that's over at survivalpedia.com. You know, there's these are some basic items that you can put into place 
But if you know the poop really hit the fan, these things would become very, very valuable for you. Um, being able to wash clothes, um, being able to you know to wring out clothes, being able to keep some things cool um, if you if you needed it. Um, you know, having a root cellar, a water filter. I'd really like the terracotta water filter aspect of it, just because it keeps the water cool. But uh, again, in my climate, I don't I don't think it would work. But that would be interesting because I've never seen one advertised before or uh, even made. So that might, you know, some of these things as you hear them and they kind of pique your interest, you might just want to go and start doing some some searches online and seeing if you can, you know, look into this a little bit more. Is it something viable for you to do? Um, you know, is it a, a quick DIY thing that you can make and, and maybe store and have in case you really need it or try it out and, and uh, see if it works for you? Uh, and, and if you really were in a poop hit the fan situation, you know, see if it would work for you. And then uh, after that, you know, you can kind of store it and you know that it's there for you if you ever really needed it. So that's over at survivalpedia.com. I'm going to go ahead and link to it in the show notes like always. And you can go check it out uh, if you want to take uh, another peek at this article. All right, so our next article comes to us from Daisy Luther over at The Organic Prepper. And it's really coming to us from Jose Martinez, who uh, was in Venezuela, still very tied into Venezuela over there. And he's got family there. Um, he is writing, and I can't remember where he's at now. I think he has... He has officially bugged out of Venezuela, and I believe his family and his kids are with him. And uh, But anyway, so just remember that uh, English is a second language, and so I try to correct things as I, as I see them as I go. But uh, yeah, a lot of the times getting the, you know, reading it the way that it's uh, written will get you a feel for, you know, maybe where he's coming from and uh, reminds you that, you know, this is about Venezuela. Now, at the very end of this article, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things I read in the comments that are very scary. Uh, and uh, I know that we've touched on it before, but um, just something to remember uh, because, guys, um, this healthcare situation that we have in America, it's, it's very scary when you really think about it um, because right now we, we can pretty much get a lot of things that we need, at least if you're in the city. But what if... You know, we have become so accustomed to going to the doctor. We've become so accustomed to just going and running to a clinic whenever we uh, we have a little bit of a headache or someone, you know, our kids are not feeling well or whatever. But what happens when, the, you know, things start to break down? And uh, so he talks a little bit about this where um, the healthcare system has been breaking down in Venezuela for a very, very long time. And so, uh, you know, they've had to deal with it there. So let me, let me stop yapping and let me go ahead and start reading this one again. It's called Life Without Medical Care, How the Public Health System Collapsed in Venezuela. Editor's note, people who have been through a collapse like Jose and Selco know for a fact what it is like to live in a place where there are no hospitals, little medicine, and few professionals. In this article, Jose gives us a glimpse of what life is like without medical care as he shares how the public health system in Venezuela collapsed. The access to the public health system in Venezuela hasn't been good since the middle 70s. In the bigger cities, things were more or less decent until the middle 80s. This system, based on mere profits as quotas or portions from the oil revenues, while the population was not very large, reached a critical mass level. The crumbs from such revenues, which where most of this income was stolen or sent outside of the country, allowed us to avoid the total collapse of the health system. Despite being bigger every year, the infrastructure of the system 
could not hold up against the corruption. In such a fast-growing population as ours, this was the prelude to a total disaster. At first, people thought this was not important. Money and work were enough. The major concerns of the people was finding a place to live. Buying a plot and building a house with their own effort was something that people did not do, except for some eccentric persons that earned the respect and admiration of their neighbors. If the government built the house and you ended up paying an insignificant quota, much better. Usually, in four or five years, the inflation would eat that debt like it happened with our mortgage. Anyway, this was more or less the general status quo in the middle 80s. But the health system had already to feel the stress of the desperate migration, mostly from Colombia, Ecuador, and even Peru and Chile. Go figure. The corruption was so high that equipment and supplies were stolen by the doctors and destined for the private hospitals. This is absolutely true. Never punished, this scheme went on for decades. You had to bring your own supplies to the hospital. Now, in the middle 90s, things were nasty enough. In the central hospital, one of the biggest and most prestigious hospitals in the country, the general situation of scarcity was starting to be felt. Usually, the patient had to take their own supplies and medication because there were not enough for everybody. If they could buy their supplies, the employees, nurses, and doctors could attend them for free. The few supplies they received from the government was just for the really poor who would die or face permanent damage if not properly attended. One time, I lost an encounter with a bee. Its poison made my ears, face, and hands get swollen. It was more or less funny for my college friends until I told them I had problems swallowing. So they decided to take me to the hospital. It was nearby, so in four minutes walking, we arrived at the gate. I never could see myself in a mirror, but I don't forget the face of the people and the gatekeeper when they looked at me. Once inside, we had to wait for a doctor. A chubby resident attended me in a hallway. There was no office available, much less a bed, and he gave me a recipe. And I think he's meaning a prescription there. The antidote was inexpensive, and the kind pharmacist gave me the shot without charge. I went home, and after a couple of hours, I was fine. If this would happen to me now, perhaps I would not be writing this. People have died because of much less harmful diseases. A few years ago, before the crisis, I went in a motorcycle ride with some good fellows. We went to a tourist town about a couple of hours from my city. Ate strawberries with whipped cream. Yes, strawberries grown up in the middle of the tropics. Could you believe it? And another bee decided that I was not friendly. After half an hour, there I was again, this time in a small town infirmary. One of the riding bros was a doctor, so he joked with the nurse that if something happened to me, he just would take my bike after signing my death certificate. We Venezuelans have an indestructible sense of humor sometimes. Once my ear channel got unswollen and I was able to hear again, we hit the road and came back home. The next day, I bought two hydrocortisone vials, one for me and one for my kid just in case. The probabilities of him being allergic to were way too big. When they were almost expired, we donated them to the public nearby infirmary in our location where we trusted the doctor in charge. You have to be ready to take care of yourself. This extremely long preamble is just to enhance this fact. Anything can happen at any moment, and if you are not decently prepared, you could suffer some degree of damage. I used to travel for years with a little plastic box, with everything needed to inject myself, the hydrocortisone given the case. 
I know we could be able to locate someone able to give a shot to my kid, but the probabilities of getting a bee inside the car with the air conditioning, whether it's way too hot as we usually use it all the time, on and the windows closed were almost zero. Almost. But I took the medicine with us wherever we went. I know this allergy can kill me or give us a hard time with the younger kid. Older son is as tough as an old crocodile. (laughs) The last 20 years in the Venezuela public health system. Anyway, allow me to explain how things have been going the last 20 years in the public health system in Venezuela. Given the general status of the health system, one of the flags that used Uncle Hugo was this, to bring voters to his side. Once he could sit on the chair, he started to use the vast resources of the country to try to improve the infrastructure. I have to be fair on this. Yes, there were some things that improved a lot. Compared to the disaster of a white elephant of our former public health system, many people could enjoy for the first time in their lives a decent medical attention. Of course, this was the disguise for the Castro brothers getting inside my homeland, his Cuban spies, doctors and nurses, all of them with military training and well brainwashed. Kids with heavy, and so, guys, I don't know where that, I mean, I guess there's uh, more information there that needs to uh, be elaborate, elaborated on as far as the Castro brothers you know, go and Cuba being involved with Venezuela. I don't know enough of that history. Kids with heavy facial deformations were able to get reconstructive surgery. Grannies and grandpas with eye problems got surgery too. Working in a state company but with huge benefits like access to the private health system with a full coverage insurance, we were pretty much protected. Working in the oil fields, we needed to know that our families were going to be okay. There has been a lot of rhetoric around the public system recently. It's completely ineffective now as the policies just remain in the air. The resources used came from the oil revenue. Instead of using that revenue and dumping it in the dark, bottomless pit that is the Venezuela system of public health management, if just a portion, says say one-third of that income, would have remained in a safe place, perhaps overseas, to generate passive income to hold some minimum expenses and funding yearly that hedge, the health system could have been able to survive and provide some welfare for the children. But the currency control exchange was total and imposed with an iron fist. Back then, with the incredible amount of money incoming, no one saw any need to use it as a means of securing a much smaller but much safer income. That would have allowed a continuous stream of resources that under inadequate management would be enough for providing oxygen to a health infrastructure that day-to-day faces an increasing population. So he's basically talking about that if money, if they just would have been a little bit more proactive, if they would have thought a little bit more into the future, that they would have been able to uh, keep money coming into the health system to be able to help the poor people and or you know anybody who, who needs help. So we should just heed this as a warning to us where, where times are relatively okay. Now, I know that there's people listening to this at all different levels you know, of, of your finances, right? Um, but relatively, we are not in a collapse yet. And so we, there's still items available. There are still ways that we can prepare. There are still, you know, there's still opportunities out there is what I'm trying to say. Now, so one, one of the reasons why my, my ebook is so important, I feel, and that is one of the big keys is to build multiple streams of income 
into your finances. But right now is the time where we should be making some good decisions. You know, if you get uh, some increased money coming in, don't sit there and, and you know upscale. You know, spend it on buying a new home or or you know going out and buying a new car or going. I mean, if you need a new vehicle, fine. If you need to, you know, you need to to move into another home. I mean, all that kind of stuff is fine. But if you can make plans now to mitigate issues later on. Now, you know, you should do that as much as you can right now. All right, so uh, continuing on, a chronic problem with the Venezuela economy has been the lack of decent salaries. This is a very old problem. The health professionals stopped being well paid many years ago in the public sector, but the demand in the private sector was very, very high, and this compensated the low salaries offered by the government. With the chronic scarcity taking place in the medicines and supplies, the population increasing took to ridiculous levels the bedding availability in the hospitals. Traditionally, the assistance to people in regions far away, the big cities, was deficient. It was frequent to see people in small towns and villages trying to collect money to send a mother with her sick child or children to one of the big cities so she could take them to a big hospital. And now, everyone is suffering. Is there any need to explain how poor people, my poor people, are doing now? I don't think it's necessary. The outrage I feel while typing this is something that can't be healthy at all. A much wiser writer than me wrote, Once you have a child, you become the father of all the children in the world. This was Jose Marti, and he was right. As I'm writing the last reports, Centro Gumilia, a social research center, part of the company of Jesus, part of the Catholic Church of Venezuela that has survived the official hostility since since before the 90s, which began documenting in 2014, inform us that the emergency system is paralyzed. There is no blood availability for transfusions. How is someone going to be willing to donate any blood if they are malnourished? To make things worse, the collapse of the wastewater collection systems, the rainwater drainages, lack of water supply, and power are a complete disaster. The constant electrical failures has damaged very costly and essential medical equipment. It is unbelievable that this situation is present without even one missile or one shot, not without the slightest threat of a war. The report mentions that in the years 2007 to 2010, a significant amount of resources were lost. The official policies were completely erroneous because there was not an incentive, there was not an incentive to boost the internal medicine production. These are the results. 84% of our health products have to be imported. When we exported 2.4 millions of barrels a day with a price of $90 a barrel, dang, who cares? Where do I sign? But now there is neither the crude nor the price, just a deep sense of hopelessness. Another imbalance of the budget is, and I am astonished to read this because it was news for me as well, is that the 21% of the health budget was destined to 8 million of public employees and families' private insurance. This is a very high number in a country with roughly 36 million of inhabitants, I think. However, the private insurance is no longer functional, to be honest. One of my friends had an accident with this child. The kid broke one arm and there was not even a specialist to attend him to put him in a cast. The x-rays were insurance covered, thank God. 
So my buddy had to go to another hospital, get borrowed money to buy the casting bandages, the painkillers, and the wait for a reimbursement that lasted two months. The money's value was less than the half of the original amount once he got it. For those of you that may have may not have access access to some social networks, I have seen pictures of women giving birth on cardboards over the naked floor. I have seen pictures of newborns in cardboard boxes because there are no cradles. I have seen pictures of people getting a medical intravenous treatment laying on a cardboard and some sheets in the floor of the hospital. I had to pay a lot of money in 2015 because of my wife needing four bottles of liquid serum for an antibiotic treatment and the needles plus tubing. This was something almost impossible to get and without some extra income of my second job, it would have been pretty uphill. I have seen people younger than me dying because of a clogged brain blood vessel with 37-year-olds because of the stress and God knows what else. An oil state company worker subject to medical yearly exams. Some fellows still in the country have told me that the people with nasty wounds, ulcerations, or disasters asking for money in the streets has increasingly has increased dramatically. This was more or less common sight in the largest cities, especially in the public transport of the poorest areas of the city. But now you get the picture. If this is uncommon for them, go figure. I just logged into one of my profiles of the social networks and read that some medical personnel are protesting because of the lack of resources and the entire medical staff of the Zulia state once the largest oil producer of the country has resigned. There is no medical attention in the entire state, leaving 5 million people unattended. Under these conditions, the best we can do is to eat healthy, if such thing is even possible. But with an orchard and producing stealthy, highly nutritional foods, it can be done for a while. To get out of the largest cities, which we did, and downsize our lifestyles, living much smaller lives until things get settled. I hope you have enjoyed the reading more certain facts in real time in the next article. All right, guys. So very sad situation there. Um, there, I mean, I know that I wrote an article on Venezuela and uh, I linked to just a video of what it was like in the in the hospitals and uh, very sad. I'm going to try to find that and I'll link to it in the show notes if you if you want to go check that one out uh, just because it was um, just seeing the video. It just it just just broke your heart. Um, in the uh, in the comments, and I mentioned this at the very beginning of the article, I was um, I, I thought it was very interesting because people are saying that. Uh, well, let me read this first one, and it's Pat. Pat is saying this. Um, so it says, reading Jose's article, I was struck by the frequent similarities between the Venezuelan system breaking down or broken down and the U.S. medical system. My husband and I have experienced in a very rural area. We too must take our own medications, those we are on daily to the hospital, or they either do not have them, which has happened to me several times, although the medications are common, or they do have them and charge hundreds of dollars for them. And so there's a little bit more there, but man, uh, you know, the rural settings, that's not the only person that I've heard say that. I've heard that from other people as well, even on the Facebook group. Uh, I know that you know going up to the country, there was a trauma uh, hospital that we passed, and uh, I, from what I heard, it was it's, it's basically completely shut down um, because there's like there's no one to to run it, and it's just it's one of those rural things. And so, if you are out in the country, that's one of those gives and take type of things, you know. 
if you're homesteading, if you're out in the country, you've got to be prepared that um, if you need to go to the doctor, you're going to have to you know, make it your, your way. You're going to have to get in your vehicle. If you're sick or someone is really hurt or whatever, um, you, know, you, can, you could wait on an ambulance. But, I mean, gosh, trying to find you out there and get out there uh, would, be, would be terrible. But anyway, so it's one thing to, uh, to take into consideration uh, when, you're, when you're out there. And I know that people, I've read articles before in the past where people who are older who have been homesteading, who are older because of medical care, have sold their, their, their farms and have moved closer into the city because of medical care. And so, uh, you know, they've, they've had to stop homesteading because of that. So anyway, um, it still goes back to the fact that you need to be responsible for yourself. I mean, you know, right now we have, um, there's still medical attention available. There's still ways that you can get medical attention. But if there was a situation where you couldn't, what would you do? Um, that's one, one of the reasons why I'm always pushing Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's book. Um, I think you should, you should look into natural, you know, remedies. I think you should look into essential oils. We should eat better. If there are medical conditions that you have right now and you can take care of them, take care of them now. Um, you know, the things in Venezuela started um, p- picking up steam very, very quickly when things started uh, degrading very quickly all across the board. And so the medical situation was one. But then remember, and I've talked about this before, it, it started with, you know, like baby diapers were hard to come by. And then it was feminine hygiene products. And then it was toilet paper, and it, then it just seemed like the bottom fell out, and everything was hard to find. And so, uh, you know, we, we don't ever want to find ourselves in a situation like that. If we can mitigate, that's one reason why we prep. That's one reason why we want to be self-reliant. Um, you know, just just the definition is we are reliant on ourselves. Um, you know, so you can't be completely self-reliant, uh, self-sufficient. You're, there are going to be things out there that you are going to need, but you can help to mitigate some of the issues that your family is going to face if there ever it was a situation. Even if we, we got a slow economy and, uh, you know, we started seeing some of these things kind of drift off and harder and harder to come by, definitely you can, uh, you can help mitigate uh, some of these things. That's why we prep. That's why this thing uh, that we do is so, so important. Well, guys, again, that's over at theorganicprepper.com and uh, go check that one out. I'll have that one in the show notes as well. All right, guys. Well, that is it for episode 328. Thanks for starting out your week with me. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com and that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. Hey, and take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect on the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.